Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Friends, our reading this morning, um, as we read this morning, we return to chapter 13 of the Gospel according to Matthew, exploring the radical parables of Jesus. Our parable this morning, the parable of the yeast and leavened bread, is only one verse. It's really short. And usually it is juxtaposed with the parable of the mustard seed. As we have mentioned, parables defy any singular meaning. Throughout the centuries, biblical interpreters have offered an array of meanings to our reading this morning, utilizing the metaphors of yeast with positive and negative connotations. In addition to the term's appearance here in Matthew, That word for yeast, zume, it occurs at least 12 more times in the New Testament, and oddly enough, um, often hints at something that tastes a little bit off, and here's why. All that aside, this this little uh, fun fact, here's some fun facts to get your brains moving as you hear this parable. That term, zume, for yeast in the Greek, in first century terms, it refers to a sourdough starter, yes? A sourdough starter. Not necessarily those little packages of, of cultured yeast in your fridge. Also, Three measures, you see why it smells weird. Um, Three measures in first century terms is not synonymous with three cups. Three measures of flour is somewhere between 40 and 60 pounds of zume, yeah. So you can see the dough would be far too much for one person to knead and way too much for one person to consume, I hope. The image is one of extravagance, our hyperbole, our abundance perhaps. But with all that put aside, let us open our hearts and minds and turn now to this little bitty parable and see what it might reveal to us this morning. A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 13, verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word. Lori and I were at a restaurant recently when I overheard this odd conversation between a father and his college-age son in the booth directly behind me. I, I tried not to eavesdrop, but I couldn't help myself. 
This was one riveting conversation. The father said, how are things going? And the son said, good. <laughs> How's the summer job? Good. How are you feeling about going to see you in the fall? Good. How do you think their football team's going to do under Coach Prime this fall? Good. I mean, this poor father, it was like pulling teeth. I, I overheard him say, uh, so how does your class schedule look for the fall? He said, good. He said, uh, excited about living in the dorms? He said, yeah. I mean, this kid was a real conversationalist. <laughs> the father said, did you decide on a major yet? And the son said, yeah. And the father said, what is it? He said, communications. <laughs> Sometimes listening to Jesus' teachings can feel a little bit like that conversation. There are times when Jesus could fill in a few more details for us, maybe be a little more forthcoming with the takeaways. He often teaches in this cryptic, parabolic, enigmatic, open-ended style that leaves us scratching our heads. Like we sort of get it, but not really. And then we're left wondering, uh, what exactly was the point, Jesus? Like with these parables from Matthew 13, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this, like a mustard seed planted in the soil, like a sower scattering seeds in a field, like a hidden treasure buried in a field, like weeds and wheat that are coexisting in a field together, like a dragnet that's cast into the sea, like a merchant that's searching for fine pearls. And we're thinking, okay, well, uh, which one is it, Jesus? Uh, is it one or is it the other? Is it all these together? And why do you say that the kingdom of heaven is like these things? Can't you just tell us what the kingdom of God actually is? But Jesus never tells us really what the kingdom of heaven actually is. He just tells us what it's like. And maybe that's because the kingdom of heaven is really impossible to pin down or even describe. It's like that Indian parable of the blind men who are all encountering the elephant for the first time and trying to describe it based on the individual parts that they happen to feel, a tusk, an ear, a, a leg, and one of them says, uh, it's, the elephant is, is, is smooth, and the other one says it's leathery, and the other one says it's, like a, it's like rough like a, like a tree. And none of them are wrong, they're just not entirely right. And so Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this. But for a lot of us, the kingdom of heaven is really hard to comprehend because we get hung up on these two operative words, kingdom and heaven. And we hear the word kingdom and immediately what comes to mind is this actual physical place over which a king rules or governs. And then we hear the word heaven, and we imagine some actual place that's up there or out there, or at least somewhere other than right here on earth. And so we assume that the kingdom of heaven is a place we go to after we vacate the kingdoms of this earthly world. And we imagine that there, wherever we go to, there is this white-bearded Colonel Sanders-looking patriarch that's sitting on a throne 
like a know-it-all monarch, dispensing judgments and proclamations and giving orders to all his minions. Only this is so far from what Jesus had in mind when he spoke of kingdom of heaven. For Jesus, the kingdom wasn't a specific place at all, and heaven wasn't outside of time and space that we know it. And the kingdom of heaven wasn't governed by some omnipotent God-like, king-like God that, that always gets his way and then punishes those who get in his way. In 1526, William Tyndale was the very first to translate the Bible into English. And he translated this phrase, basileia ton uranon, that's the Greek, into the English kingdom of heaven. And Tyndale lived in this age in which kings and kingdoms were everywhere and where hierarchy and patriarchy dominated every facet of life. And Tyndale transposed his worldview onto the worldview of Jesus and the Gospels. And 500 years later, we know that Tyndale's translation was a little bit like the blind man describing the elephant using only the analogies that he was familiar with. And today, we don't live in a world where kings and kingdoms are the norm. And I hope most of us don't want to live in a world anymore where hierarchy and patriarchy or normative, hasn't worked out so well for us. The kingdom of heaven, in other words, misses the mark entirely. Because what Jesus originally called the basileia tone uranon is about as untranslatable as God's name itself. There was no equivalent for that phrase or that concept in the Hebrew Bible. The closest we can come to is what the ancient prophets, especially the prophet Amos, described as the day of the Lord. And that day of the Lord referred to this moment in time, in history, when God would set everything right and there would, there would be no more weeping and no more mourning and no more hunger and no more violence. And this would be a, a day in which shalom and peace and wholeness ruled. And that's what Jesus had in mind when he spoke of what today we call the kingdom of heaven. It's not defined by a place. It's certainly not defined by power. Instead, it is this lived experience, if you will, a present reality in this world in which our lives are marked by shalom and peace and wholeness and abundance. And when Jesus taught about this reality in parables, I think what he was trying to describe, quite simply, is heaven on earth. Jesus was saying that whenever the ineffable, indescribable, undefinable beauty and wonder and peace and justice of God, whenever that touches the ordinary, mundane, imperfect realities of our lives and our world, that's when we experience the kingdom of heaven. And call it what you will. But Jesus described it something like a heaven-on-earth experience. Isn't that what we all long for? Not to be evacuated from the ordinary messiness of life on this earth, but to actually experience what it's like when that ordinary messiness is transformed by heaven coming to earth. We, just a few moments ago, prayed the Lord's Prayer 
And in that prayer, we said this line, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray those words, we're asking for God's highest aims and ideals and purposes to be experienced here and now in this earthly life. We're asking for the beauty and the shalom of God to touch us and to touch everything around us. And so Jesus says, heaven on earth is, it's, I don't know, it's like weeds and wheat that coexist and feel together, these opposites that shouldn't even be there. It's like the dragnet that's tossed into the sea and it gathers up all kinds of fish, not just the ones you want. It's like a hidden treasure that's buried in a field and somebody is just out and just stumbles across it in a moment of grace. It's like the tiniest seed that has the capacity and the tenacity to grow tall and strong. Jesus says heaven on earth is something like that. It's like all these things. In fact, let me add one more, he says. It's like yeast that a woman mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Yeah, that's what heaven on earth is like. When we do God's will on earth in the here and now in this world, it's like living yeast. It's like a life source that leavens and raises up everything around it. This is one of the shortest parables that Jesus ever taught. A simple one-liner, really, but every Jew in that first century world understood what he meant because they were well acquainted with unleavened bread. Their ancestors ate it in the wilderness, and once a year for seven straight days, once a year, every Jew had to eat unleavened bread during the Feast of Unleavened Bread at Passover. And generally speaking, unleavened bread isn't super appetizing. It's dry and bland. You need oil and other things to dress it up a little bit. If not, it's not heaven on earth. And that's the point Jesus is making. Without yeast, bread is flat. It's bland. It's generally undesirable. And without heaven on earth, so too is life. Have you ever had one of those moments, one of those days, one of those seasons when life just felt bland and flat and humdrum? Or have you ever looked at the world, at the state of the the utter craziness and messiness and madness of our world, and it looked so bad and you thought it's just bland and it's dry and it's undesirable? This parable reminds us that an unleavened life and an unleavened world is the opposite of experiencing heaven on earth. And this parable then calls us to look inwardly and to take inventory of our lives, to see if our souls are expanding and growing and rising, enlarging toward the best version of ourselves. Or to ask ourselves, are our souls contracting and shrinking? Are they regressing toward some lesser version of ourselves? Is there living yeast that's leavening our spirits? What kind of yeast dwells within us, in fact? Because if you've ever baked bread or you've ever brewed your own beer, you know that not just any yeast is going to do. There is living yeast and there is dead yeast. Yeast has a shelf life. Before mixing it with flour, any wise baker will test her yeast with a dash of sugar and a little warm water, and if it bubbles, it's alive, and it's active. 
What about you? What's filling the space of your soul? Is it dead or alive? Is there anything in you that's bubbling up in such a way that it hints of an experience of heaven on earth? During my renewal leave, I I took some time to search my own life, to look for bubbles. Is my soul leavened? Is my spirit rising or is it contracting or even defeated? One of the great struggles we have as humans is that we try to live two lives or two selves, as Merton once said. One of those selves is the self that we project onto the world in public, and we all have this false self. It's not a bad thing. It's how we get through the world. But it always tries to be what the world wants it to be. And so it prowls, and it hustles, and it haggles for affirmation. I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe, maybe you think that the world expects you to be successful, and so you try to be most successful. Or the smartest person in the room. Or just good-looking with a great tan and six-pack abs. Or maybe you think the world's trying to tell you to be perfect and righteous and pure. Or maybe you think the world wants you to be world's greatest mom or world's number one dad. Or maybe you think the world's telling you to be that Tracy Flick high-achieving type student whom everyone just truly adores. And sometimes we actually succeed in being these things, at least on the outside. But inevitably, eventually, we discover that all that affirmation is just dead yeast because it doesn't really, it enlarges the ego, but it doesn't expand the soul. It doesn't enlarge our hearts enough so that we can come to love our true self. And that is when we start feeling miserable and irritable and seeing ourselves and the world as flat because we've listened to the wrong voices. And this could have happened to Jesus. If you've ever wondered why Jesus told all these parables in Matthew 13, just look at Matthew 12. In the 12th chapter of Matthew, Jesus gets kicked around by all these religious establishment critics All those people who were religious who were expecting Jesus to be their version of the Christ. And so one day Jesus plucks a grain of wheat and it's on the Sabbath. And they say, well, he's a heretic and a fraud. And one day Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And they say, that's a bad rabbi. One day Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. and, And so they say, well, the only people that can cast out a demon are those who are demons. So he must have come from the demon world. This criticism is awful. It's so hurtful. But Jesus, he knows that to try to be who they want him to be will mean something deadly to his soul. And his soul is all about bringing heaven on earth. And so in Matthew 12, he refuses to live out of this false self And Matthew says he leaves town. He goes away from them by himself. And there he remembers that he is the very fulfillment of the words of the prophet Isaiah, who said this about the coming Christ. He said, Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. In the middle of all this criticism, 
Here's this beautiful moment when Jesus remembers that he's God's beloved, that God's very soul is pleased in him, and he reclaims his true self. He doesn't have to be anybody else but God's beloved, and isn't that heaven on earth? God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven in our lives. The voice of God's affirmation is the living yeast that makes our souls rise. Without it, we can never satisfy anyone. And we will never, ever be living bread for the world because dead yeast don't rise. What voices are you listening to? And do they make your spirit rise or do they diminish it? I love the story about the young artist who exhibits his artwork for the very first time and a well-known critic shows up at the exhibit. And the critic says to the artist, would you like to hear my opinion of your work? And the artist says, yes, of course. And the critic says, well, it's worthless. And the artist says, I know, but let's hear it anyway. (laughs) Refuse to mix dead yeast with your spirit. Remember your belovedness. Remember that God's very soul is pleased with you. There's one other thing about this parable that speaks about yeast and and about how we make heaven on earth. And it not only calls us to look inwardly at our own spirits, but it also calls us to look outwardly at the spirit of our world. Look around and do you see in our community, do you see any bubbles in the collective spirit around you? Is there any evidence whatsoever that the living yeast that is leavening in you is leavening the world? And the parable asks us, are we, what are we doing to help make heaven on earth and the world around us? In his book, Do I Say Christian, Brian McLaren reminds us that one of the great hypocrisies of modern Christianity is the glaring lack of social transformation that it has generated in the U.S. He asks this question in the book, what effect is the largest, most successful religion on the planet having on global well-being. And look at the world's most serious problems, climate change, economic inequality, racism, war. How much time and energy has modern Christianity invested and devoted to these serious problems? And here's a stunning fact that McLaren notes in his book. He says that in the U.S., the states with the highest rates of church attendance are ironically ranked the lowest in life expectancy, in happiness, in meeting income, and education. Doesn't the kingdom of heaven mean healthy lives and happy lives and educated lives? When Jesus taught this thing about the kingdom of heaven, he wasn't giving us some evacuation plan from this earth. He was giving us a transformation plan for earth, this plan to help people become more loving so they could build a more loving society that looks like the day of the Lord. This parable reminds us that whenever we love our religion and our rules more than we love people, we're just dead yeast, and the whole soul of our world shrinks. So we ask ourselves, are we living yeast? or dead yeast in the world. 
Is there any evidence that we've been here? Are those around us loved and more loving because we're here? It is about experiencing heaven on earth and here and now, and the problem is it just doesn't happen overnight. Yeast takes time to rise, and heaven on earth takes time to fully arrive, and so there's work to do, and the parable says there's work to do on ourselves, there's work to do in the world, and it's going to take time. I'll close with this. I read recently in Turkey, I have never been to Turkey, but if you've been there, maybe you've noticed this, that there are, throughout Turkey there are a lot of homes, like residences, that are unfinished. You'll find wood piles and stacks of bricks next to unfinished homes and with half a foundation and a lot of construction equipment that's just scattered around. And sometimes that's years. Well, the reason is that in the Muslim culture, you're not allowed to, to have financial debt. People can only build homes with cash. And so they work for a little while until they run out of money and they save up. And they work a little more until they finally get the house built. Maybe that's how it works when we try to create heaven on earth. You can't build it if you don't have it. You can't leaven the world if you, if you lack leaven in your own life. You can't build heaven on earth if your soul is in debt. And so you work and you save and you work a little more until you look up and you see it. Let's pray. Generous and ever faithful God, you have spoken to us through your inspired word. And now give us grace to not be mere hearers of your word, but doers also. Guide us from here by the light of your spirit that we might believe and act on what has been revealed to us today. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.